The hardest thing about being a celebrity is that so many people think you are so cool that you get to feel cool about yourself, I think. And if you're cool about yourself, you don't see the dark side. And you don't avoid the dark side. In fact, you tend to think that if you walked into the dark, you would light it up. Hello, and welcome to Invisible Faith. This is Kate, and I'm really glad that you joined for the second episode. The voice you heard just before was that of Mr. Graham Kerr, who many of you know better as the Galloping Gourmet. He was generous and kind enough to join me for an extended interview. Last week, we had aired the first part of this two-part series. In the first episode, which I encourage you to go back and listen to if you haven't already, really talked about his beginnings, uh, how he met his wife at the tender age of 11, how he became a chef, how the Galloping Gourmet started, and then really how the end of the Galloping Gourmet, because of an accident that both he and his wife were in, was the start of a new life, a new life in Christ. And that is what he shares on this part two episode. So it really is a story of Mr. Graham Kerr's life, of his wife, Trina, who played such an important role, not only, of course, in his own life, but in him coming to faith. And then for a very important woman by the name of Ruthie Turner, who really changed the life of Graham and Trina. So with that, let me start the second part of the interview with the one and only Graham Kerr. Turned out to be two years, almost to the day that we were at sea, that turned out to be my great adventure that nobody in my family got the same amount of pleasure out of than I did. Um, I, I got complete basin full of everything. Beautiful boat, beautiful places, beautiful harbors, beautiful everything, beautiful people. We used to call ourselves the wet set instead of the jet set. Um, and... Uh, in the end, we came into a little little river in the Chesapeake Bay, having gone around the Mediterranean, across the Atlantic, right around the Caribbean, and up into the Brador Lakes and the Great Lakes, and down through the Lake Erie Canal system. Came up into the into the Chesapeake Bay. We were going to go down through the Panama Canal to Australia, New Zealand, everything. And um, there was this white house that Trina said after two years of being here, see, she's now, she's now looking at houses. Oh, darling, look at that house. And so I looked at the house and it was beautiful. It was just like a miniature Tara from Gone with the Wind, you know, all white and columns and things. And um, she said, and then she said about five minutes, oh, I do love that house. And I said, well, listen, we're stuck here. We, we'd run aground. Um, I'll take the, the boat and I'll go ashore and I'll make the guy an offer. For that. She wouldn't do that. We're, we're sailing around the world. I said, yes, I would. You like the house? I'll do it. And, um, <laughs> and I said, but don't be surprised if a guy chases me down the dock with a gun because of this <laughs> silly offer. So anyway, cut a uh, long story short. 
the, I asked the guy, do you have a big gun? And he said, I've got a duck. I said, that's fine. Can you chase me down the dock with it? He said, why would I do that? <clears throat> I said, I told him. And he said, I love a joke. Okay, give me your price. I said, no, surely I don't have to do that. It's enough. No, he said, I, if we're going to have a joke, let's have it properly. So I told him how much, which was just $250,000. Come on. This is nine acres of waterfront land uh, on an 1814 mansion. Right. So, so it is. It's a, it's a perfect insult. Mm -hmm. It was right at this recession that mm. took place at that time. And I have no understanding what his need was. But he, read, he reached across the desk and he shook my hand and he said, it's yours. Uh, that's unbelievable. What an incredible story. It is. Well, Mercury, 250 back in 1973 was more, you know. Um, but but uh, just, just so people don't get the impression it's today's dollars. Um, and um, so I, I rode back to the boat and Trina said, I didn't see the guy chase you with a gun. I said, that's right, because the owner's not in. Oh, I see. And I said, the reason for that is that you are the owner. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the great moments of my life, letting my darling know that I love him. Um, oh, that is, it's beautiful. I, I was thinking, oh, I have to talk to my husband, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to set expectations that high, but that, that's, that is incredible. What, you said that was what year? That was 1973. So, no, no sorry, 1971, 72. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Okay. So, yes. so this is again after the show had ended while you're. Yes. 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 Recovering. And before the, your conversion. That exactly right. And it was in that White House that the biggest change of all came place. And if I may keep using this thing, which I've never. Um, used before, this idea of closed doors. Um, that accident opened the door for me to have the adventure of my life and to be healed, by the way, completely. Um, but when I saw that white house, that door had to close on that adventure because I couldn't afford the boat and the house. Um, so the, the boat had to go. And so we took up residence in this White House because she needed to come ashore. So it was um, during that time, uh, the hardest thing about being a celebrity is that so many people think you are so cool that you get to feel cool about yourself, I think. And if you're cool about yourself, you don't see the dark side. And you don't avoid the dark side. In fact, you tend to think that if you walked into the dark, you would light it up. I misbehaved to the point that I cannot conceive of the reasons why, other than I must have been going through an aberration, but I, I don't want to <clears throat> soften it. I was an adulterer in a relationship 
with my wife that was perfect. Um, mm. uh, I, our love for each other is amazing. Um, met at 11 at school, come on, first girlfriend, everything. How could I possibly do such a thing? And it, it was being hung out to dry at the top rung of a celebrity ladder when I had no idea how to be able to handle that. Um, so she, she, Trina finds out, and our personal love for each other. Can I ask a question? Yes, uh, of course. Just, and it's, a, it's a little personal, and I don't want to get too personal, but was there a sense of entitlement that you felt as a result of your celebrity that contributed to that? Um, I mean, I, those times were very open, wild, sort of swinging times, right? The early yeah. 70s. I, I just wonder if the fame made you feel that somehow you rationalized it as okay and something to which you were entitled. I don't think so. You know, one, one of the things that took place for me in my life uh, with Trina was when we decided we were going to marry. Um, I said to her, I really don't think I've got what it takes to be married to a star. And she was at that stage with the Denver Prayers. She had a J. Arthur Rank starlet contract and film tests being done at that stage. Um, and, you know, she's the same age as Liz Taylor. So, um, and I, I think the equal of her beauty. Um, and I could see how she could make it. And I said to her, I don't think we could marry and be successful um, if you're a star. And I'm going to ask you whether you could give it up. Mm. And she wow. said, she looked at me and she said, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So here's this woman who gave up all of that. <clears throat> now, at the time that I fell so deeply, she had been asked to go back on stage again for in a program called Oh, What a Lovely War, in which she sang the title song brilliantly, filling the theater with this amazing energy and, and presence, which she has. And I saw the very thing that I was afraid of actually taking place in front of my eyes. So I think in some silly way, I took this a woman's amazing commitment to me and, and held it in doubt because I felt the audience was more powerful than I was. Interesting. So I think that I fell out of a kind of jealous response to the audience, um, which was so foolish and proved to be foolish. But I can tell you that it hurt Trina to such an extent that we lived nine years with that fa failure of mine. Um, in which she did not have the tools by which to forgive me. She lived with me because of the children, um, but 
during that nine years, she helped me become an international celebrity. Which is amazingly sacrificial. Isn't it? Yes. Yes, it, you know, it really is, especially as thinking that you met, you know, you met at such an early age and then she was such a partner to you throughout this journey. So yes, that was very sacrificial. So, um, so we arrived now and you can see a little bit now about why it was that even <clears throat> with all that success and the big boat and everything else, that she was tired. Uh, she was exhausted by not being able to forgive. And I tried so hard to be the best husband I could be in order to win the, her approval. That's really the reason why I think the Galloping Gourmet was so successful. Every episode I was trying to gain her approval. She would rate the programs after each episode from A plus to a C. And I would love it if I could get an A plus on a Friday so that the weekend was better for us. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so here we are in this White House and so we get a knock on our front door and it's a very short, and her name was Ruthie Turner. And Ruthie said to me, do you have a, a job for a maid? I'm not really a maid, I'm actually a missionary and I want to go to um, Haiti where my brothers and sisters are hurting. And um, my pastor said that our church is too small to send me. And so I'm here to ask whether you would give me a, a, a a job as a maid and pay me well. And then I put all the money in a savings account. And then I'd be able to go to Haiti and, and serve. Well, I'd never had a proposition like that before in my life. I was an esoteric Buddhist of types. Um, <clears throat> so I said, you better, well, the first thing I said in a rather arrogant way was, can you speak French? And she said, no, sir. And I said, well, how are you going to get your message across if you can't mm -hmm. speak French? And she said, I've got a strong back and I've got willing hands and I've got Jesus in my heart. Now, that somehow knocked the wind out of my sailor's sails. And um, so I took her in, introduced her to Trina, who at that time was taking about seven different medications to compensate for her not having the tools to forgive. She was actually drowning herself in meds to stay alive. And um, uh, so Ruthie came in and she served us and she hummed her little hymns. She never said a thing. She didn't leave tracks around or write Jesus on Vaseline on the shaving mirror so that when the bathroom steams up. <laughs> that were, I had a friend who does that in motels. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah, it's shocking, but there we are. Um, that seems un unkind to the staff, but I shouldn't comment. <laughs> I'll cut that out. You'll go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we then uh, lived with this young lady who took the news back to her little church in Wilmington, Delaware, where our new president was from. And the church was a Pentecostal holiness church, 70 members, all black, who 
got the news from their young member who would travel a hundred miles to go to church on Sundays from where we lived in, in the, in the, you know, the, the Chesapeake Bay. And they began to pray for Trina, that she would be able to be freed from this. And in the end, she would say, she's, she's not getting any better. <clears throat> she has such, such a hard life. And so they, they began to pray and fast for her. For a whole month, they never left her alone. They signed up for a 24-hour routine so that they were praying and fasting. I am reminded of this small storefront Pentecostal black church that prayed and fasted for my darling for over a three-month period. And in my mind, and says, we can love each other. Even though we don't know each other, we can yes. pray for each other. Yes. And that yes. made Very a lot of yeah. Yes. yeah, so she, in the end, went to a sister church <clears throat> um, in the strangest place. You can find it. It's, it's a little village town called Bethlehem <laughs> in Maryland. Yes. And the pastor's name of the church was Friend, Pastor Friend. Very, very aptly. Yeah. She gets baptized. She has a vision of a radiant man who smiles at her, touches her heart, and she leaves that place. She didn't go to become saved. She went to think that the water might do her some good because she liked to shower when she was upset. So she comes back, she takes her seven meds and she puts them all down the drain and empties all the bottles of pills she has. And she sleeps for the first time unaided in in years. She wakes in the morning, runs for the mirror to look into her eyes to see if they look like Ruthie's because Ruthie had sparkling eyes and her eyes had deadened with the medication and they were alive. And she cried out to the people in the house at that time I was away and said, I've got it. I've got it. And the people said, what have you got? She said, I don't know. But whatever I did last night, I have it. And from that moment, she grabbed a Bible. She started reading it like it was fresh food. And this woman changed overnight. I came back two days later from a trip and was back on television again and dropped my bag at the door and I watched her across this long hallway with the with uh, Chesapeake Bay in the background. She was silhouetted against the light at the end of the tunnel. And she walked slowly towards me, Catherine, and she put her arms around my neck. And... Uh, she put her cheek really close to mine. She didn't say anything. But at that moment in time, she had the tools by which to forgive. So you can see that when it comes to um, my personal sense of 
what is now called pivoting. I went from this world is about me to this world is about others. And I found a way to look at them through this person called Jesus. And what he said and did and thought and did, acted was a way to look at people which was different. And that's the way it's been for me ever since. So I so appreciate you sharing really a very personal story and a very powerful story. Trina's forgiveness she received from Christ is forgiveness that she then extended to you, which is something that you needed, um, I think, very desperately, as you had described it. Um, and then you had, I think, months, is this correct? You know, months after she forgave you, in which you, I guess, meditated on what had happened or pondered, and then somehow that led to your own faith. Is that, yes. can you help understand that? Yeah, um, you know, let's face it, a miracle is out of the ordinary. You don't call something a miracle unless it is clearly out of the ordinary. And most of us who hear about miracles are somewhat skeptical about that. It doesn't make logical sense. Of course it doesn't. <clears throat> it's outside the realm of logic that it's happening. So you have to look at that. And when I was loved like that, by her after nine years of trying. I didn't know what it was that had caused her to do that. It was just Christmas and I thought, maybe it's just Christmas. So when I actually heard what happened to her, um, it was months after that I actually heard about her going to the church and everything else. I lived with a woman who was completely different overnight. Mm. Mm. And all I could do was try and rationalize it because that's all I had to work with. And in the end, I had to, <clears throat> the doctor came to see me, her doctor, and he said, you know, we were going to send Trina away to a mental institution for an indeterminate period of time to get her weaned off all these meds which have been so damaging to her. And it was going to take months for her to go away to be able to be treated. And she dealt with this thing, Graham, overnight. You can't do what happened to her without going into a coma. She was taking 60 milligrams of Valium a day. You can't do that. No, you can't, you can't do that. You should not yeah. do and that. And every physician I've heard since has said, that's true. That's why people go through rehab and come out of it slowly. But she dumped everything overnight. So I, he, his <laughs> eyes filled up with tears. And it's not often doctors <clears throat> cry, cry, you know. He said, I'm, I'm a Roman Catholic and I believe in miracles, but now I have seen one. Mm. God has had himself a miracle in your family and you, Graham, need to recognize it. So I went out in the garden with a huge elm tree we had at the back and I laid my hands on the elm tree and I spoke to it. And I said, 
I guess God made you and God made Trina. And, and you may have a relationship with God for all I know. But I know I don't. And I'm here asking you. Yes, I know it's a tree, but it's more than that. I personally want this relationship with you that Trina has. And I sort of expected, I didn't expect the tree to talk back, um, but I did expect something. And what I got was amazing. I turned away from the tree back to the big white house. And my very first thought was, it needs painting. The grass needs whatever the grass needs. The boat needs to be sold. It's just rotting its gut out at the end of the dock. And I don't want to go back into the studio again. I don't want to do any of this. All of this owns me. I don't own it. I'm having to work like this for all this stuff that I don't need. That's what I felt. It was like God was introducing me to what was my God. Right. Yes. And that's that that was that was my good housekeeping signal of approval was a dollar sign right in the middle of my forehead. Um, and so I I I I then had to literally plow through difficult life and for three months from that moment on, looking at this beloved wife of mine loving me back and not knowing how to get there. So it wasn't until I finally wound up on my knees in a hotel room in Ottawa after a very long day doing programs for inner city youth for the first time ever that I'd done that. It's the first time I'd ever given myself away to any project like that. And at the end of that day, I shouted at the ceiling, what do I have to say to you to get to know you like Trina does? And right out of my mouth came the words, Jesus, I love you. And I just, uh, at that moment, I had an encounter that was way beyond anything I've ever experienced in my life. It, I can't describe it. it. I just entered into a hug that I will experience once again when I die. Um, it was that powerful and that personal. And if it had lasted any few seconds longer than that, it would have killed me. That is an amazing story. It is a powerful story. And I'm going to ask you a, a hard question that I hope you forgive me for asking. Please. Because I think it's a question that people ask. They, they, they could look at your wife's, Trina, Trina's experience and her addiction and her healing. And they might say, well, I, I myself have had a loved one in that situation. And I prayed and I prayed. And that didn't happen for me. I mean, so how do you, how have you made sense of that in your own life? Or what might you say to someone who is asking that question? Uh, I don't, I don't know that I have a good answer. And that's why I'm talking uh, to other people to, to better understand their perspective. Exactly. So what would you say? <clears throat> okay. I'll give you my honest answer as, 
as I hope, you know, I would. I think there are altogether too many distractions that get in our way of meeting up with Jesus himself. Um, Christianity is, is disciples of Jesus Christ, not disciples of Billy Graham or any other great man of God who has spoken so eloquently and brilliantly. Um, that's not it. He, all he can do is a few words that cause some people to come to an understanding of a personal relationship with this one individual human being in which God resided for this period of time on earth. And if we don't try to get to sweep away all the trimmings and get down to that basic relationship, I don't think we will ever feel as loved as I was in that hotel in Ottawa in 1975, in March. I was loved, my dear, and, uh, and that love I can pass on today. It goes through me as clearly today as it did back then. It hasn't changed. It's only got stronger. No, I appreciate you very much sharing that because as you're speaking, I'm thinking, uh, you know, be still and know that I am God. And we are, as you said, so distracted yeah. and uh, so divided and fragmented within ourselves that we don't really have the room often. There isn't the space, which I think God is calling us to, um, yes. desperately calling us to. So thank you for, for sharing that. So I'm going to... I had questions, I'm going to pivot a little bit, but staying on this topic about, you know, food and, and maybe food as a spiritual metaphor, if you will. Um, I've been reading a book since the new year, since 2021, called Unveiled Mercies, Unveiled Mercy, rather, and it's a daily devotional based on insights from the Old Testament Hebrew scripture. And one of the readings in January was talking about what it means, the Hebrew word for to eat, which is a call, which I hope I'm not mispronouncing, A-K-A-L. And, and this devotional talked about when we eat, we're acknowledging that all life comes from outside of us as a gift and that what we eat has its origin in the external world and that to eat is to acknowledge that we are not self-sufficient, right? We, we're not self-sustaining. We, we need to eat to survive. And just quickly, it's in told, talked about the story of the Garden of Eden, of Adam and Eve, and how they made an effort to seek sustenance outside of God, sort of to take the fruit for themselves outside of God, and how God throughout Scripture is trying to, to use good eating to reverse this effect of bad eating, he, you know, providing Passover lamb, manna, quail, and then ultimately Jesus through the Eucharist, through communion, and feeding on his word. And so when I think about, I, as I was reading that, I was thinking of you and I was thinking about this reversal, right? From bad eating to good eating. And I know you've written many books since Galloping Gourmet. I think I counted over 23. I, you can correct me how many. 
you know, so, so have you seen your turn from this decadent rich food to healthy eating as part of your spirituality, a part of your conversion experience? I mean, I know you talked about your wife's health, but I'm just curious if you could tell us more about that. Yeah, I, I, I did. When Trina had the stroke and the heart attack, and it, if we found out that her total cholesterol was, was 365, now that's a, <laughs> that's a shockingly high number. I remember it because it's the days of the year. Um, and so I had immediately to make a decision about what she eats. And she became, later became diabetic as well. So that, that was another um, uh, source of need that she had. So I wanted to please her. So I took on the initials TACT, T-A-C-T, which spells out taste, aroma, color, and texture. And it's so much better than L-A-W, law. Um, the, the cardiologist said, this is what she can eat and this is what she can't. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, forget it. She's never going to do that. So I did a list of all of the things she loved to eat um, with her. And then I put a ring around all those things which needed to be less. And I put a big check mark alongside all of those which she could eat more of without any risk. And I simply exchanged the risk factors for those which benefited her. I just simply moved the emphasis from meats and dairy products and saturated fat levels in order to be plant life, which she loved. So she got a diet which she enjoyed, but with so much less risk. And to boot, we saved money doing it. That was the wonderful part about it. We saved over $1,000 a year by, on a food budget by this change which we made. So I had read, which I considered to be my overarching scripture, that if we're to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind, and the second one is to love our neighbor as ourselves, then I would split that $1,000 into two. 500 bucks I would invest in two orphans through Compassion International. And the other 500 I'd plow back into our own diet to be able to improve the quality by buying the occasional kiwi fruit and mangoes, which were a bit more expensive. Um, <clears throat> but I would, I would sort of burnish our, 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 our plant diet with treats. So what had been a threat for us became a treat. You only have to take the letter H out of the word threat and you, it becomes a treat. <laughs> and so that's, what, that's exactly what I did for her. And so by, um, by wrapping our lifestyle change around two orphans, that might not have made it any other way. We were giving life to two individuals at the same time as in seeding life ourselves at a, at a level which was desirable and attractive. Come on, it doesn't get better than that. 
that's, that's, you're absolutely right. That is beautiful. And I'm so glad you mentioned Compassion International. I don't think we've talked about this, but I have myself been involved in Compassion International for, I don't know, 15 years, um, maybe 20 years. Yes. Um, so would you like to, since you have a background in uh, commercials, <laughs> would you like to <laughs> do an impromptu plug for Compassion International since um, you've been a, a donor and as have yeah. I? All my life, I've wanted to somehow have a personal connection with someone in a desperate need. And I can't think of anyone more desperate than a child who's lost both its parents to whatever and is orphaned and has no real point of reference for hope for the future until someone through Compassion International living thousands of miles away makes themselves known by name to me, the orphan. And all of a sudden, hope has entered into my life. Now, I know because I've supported orphans in the past and do at the present moment, that that brings me great joy as I cut off some of my excessive lifestyle habits to make room for these children through Compassion International. Yes, it's that's beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much. I want to give you a chance to talk about so I have two things. Have you authored 23 books? Is it more than that? And I think you have one in the works. Can you tell um, us more about your books? I, <clears throat> I've had 30 books and uh, uh, the 31st is having a hard time of it at the moment, <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's in the works. Yes. Yeah. I'm writing a book called BISI, which is a terrible title, um, but it stands for Beyond Immediate Self-Interest. And I think we're surrounded by the word immediate in our world today. There's no doubt that I'm human being, so I have self-interest, no doubt. But when that becomes immediate and somebody tells me that I have to make my mind up to buy this or join this or vote this, um, and I must do this right now, um, then I am really suspect of that. And I will not knee-jerk. I, I ponder things for at least a week before I act upon them. And I'm, I'm grateful that that has brought me a measure of peace, which otherwise I wouldn't have. Well, that's a great piece of advice, uh, especially now in our culture. Um, not to be reactive and, and to take the time. So, so well, I hope that these obstacles to the book are overcome because it sounds like a, just a very relevant topic to today. And then you also have a, a YouTube channel. Yes, um, yes. Uh, when you think that 500 hours of material are added every minute to YouTube, <laughs> It has a wonderful way of humbling one. Um, <laughs> I, I do a, a weekly program talking to a 27-year-old woman, and I'm now an 87-year-old man. So it's 60 actual years that separate us. And we're looking into the future to see how it might be better than today. 
and we're talking to each other about personal choices and thoughts that we have about a better future. So the most, to give you an example of that, the, the most reasonable one, uh, recent, is that I see a great divide in our country. We're highly divided people at the moment, and everybody understands that. So I see one side um, of this huge, deep chasm cliff thing, looking at the people over the chasm. Um, the only way to get to stand with them and talk with them is to climb all the way down ford the river at the bottom and climb back up again. And that's too difficult. So I think what they're doing is they're making a decision to build a bridge. And the very first thing that they have to do to build a bridge is um, they want to build a bridge towards each other um, and hopefully meet somewhere in the middle. And so in order for that to happen, it has to be engineered carefully. You have to put a stake in the ground and make sure that it's concreted around and doesn't move. And then everything is measured from that stake in the ground on one side and the other. And they have to agree to where that stake is going to be placed. So it has to be something that can be used as a point of reference. And for me, the point of reference is Jesus. He becomes the stake in the ground and the same Jesus is positioned the other side. Now, I quite understand if there are people who simply do not know who Jesus is, but there are people who do. And it's high time that the people who do work out how to have a conversation with each other and not to have hatred or personality politics entering into it. It's just inconceivable to me that that would happen. So I am in the business nowadays of talking about the bridge and a more perfect union being formed when that bridge, which is red on one side and blue on the other, gets to be bolted together and turns sunset orange and some place where we could walk across it and meet together and drive across it and have a life together and have a, and have a, a future together. But unless that bridge is formed by somebody who have a common reference to talk with each other, unless that is solved, I don't think there's very much chance other than the gradual dissolution of that which we prize so highly today. I, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is to have conversations that were not, <laughs> not hateful and that were honest. And I think, Graham, what you're saying, I mean, I feel that we who call ourselves Christians, I don't know if you agree, but I think we need to absorb sometimes the vitriol of others and not respond in kind. We're very clearly told, you know, to love love our enemies and and not to return um, evil with evil. And sadly, I don't know that's always what we do, but I think that's what we need to do if we're going to be true to the name. I don't know what your thoughts are. I just feel that Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, of loving God, with everything we've got and loving our neighbor as ourselves, Jesus said, upon 
these commandments depends all the law and all the prophets. In other words, no matter how much you'd start raking around to try and get a verse here and a verse there, which seems to be controversial, <clears throat> why don't we just go back to day one and simply take on what he said at that day? And I don't know how to love God until I have been loved by him. See, I think God initiated the idea of love. And if I don't understand that love, like when I said, Jesus, I love you, that sounded like I was initiating a relationship, but the relationship was already there. Yes. What I simply did was throw the door open and allow myself to be loved. And I was immediately loved, and I have no doubt about that whatsoever. And so, therefore, for me, anyone who cries out, God opens that door. But it, it's a genuine cry. It's saying, I do not have this. I want it because I've heard about it. And please, you know, tell me what I have to say. That's that's it. It's just a, the cry of the human heart to be loved. And when once one loved, then it's just a question of passing it on. But you can't pass it on and, and sit in judgment and hatred of other people at the same time. It just doesn't Absolutely. work. Absolutely. It just yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. I can agree more. So, <laughs> so just to give people, if they'd like to, to hear more, the YouTube channel is, I know you changed the name. It's it's for T at three. It still be found under T at three, um, and and um, yeah, and we, our sort of subtitle is we're looking for good at the present, we're looking for everything that could be sort of as good. Yeah. Um, Very good. So it's almost time here. Just any any parting words, any advice that you would like to share uh, on a practice that has been helpful in your spiritual walk that you think might be useful to others as we well, close out? Well, I'm, you know, I have a feeling that history is written into our Bible. We have thousands of years of interaction between God and man, which is wonderful. And that that is like a river of words. I don't let it be static. I want it to be moving. And I think it's been moving through banks of time uh, for thousands of years, as I've said, and it reaches us today. But the banks that surround us today are really very different from the banks through which it has gone. It didn't change the word at all. That remained the same. But it does arrive and it can be seen to be living and active for us today. So I like to um, get into that river and go through a thing of pondering. I lie down in the river and let the river flow over me. And I select a few stones out of the bottom of the river as a few words that mean something to me at that moment. I move myself into remembering where that was first spoken and to try and go back and imagine what it must have been like at that time to be listening to that actually being spoken. And then I get out of that river, put these pebbles of words in my pocket and move on through my life. 
I just think that God, by his Holy Spirit, allows us to be informed with words which are appropriate for today that may have been written thousands of years ago. And as such, it's an important thing for us to reflect in a set-apart way. Uh, turn the radio off, turn the TV off, ask for some peace and quiet, lie down somewhere and imagine that you're in a cool river on a very hot day and see what the Lord would bring to your mind to consider. That's what I do. Well, that's beautiful advice. Uh, and we do need more quiet, more stillness, maybe fewer podcasts, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, my dear, you're speaking the truth into darkness. And this is... This is what we're here to do. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I could talk for another, I, I'd love to ask you, you know, hours more of questions, but you've been so generous again and just so gracious in working through all these issues. And I've learned a lot from you and I'm grateful to know you. And I just wish you many blessings of good health and peace and and well-being for your family and for yourself. So thank you so much, Mr. Graham Kerr. Thank you, Catherine. And you, they used to call me Gigi, and that was Galloping Gourmet. Now I'm Gigi again, and it's Grateful Graham. So Beautiful. I'm grateful to you. Yes, and I'm grateful, and I'm grateful <laughs> to you. So thank you so much. And may you have a beautiful day and beginning of, of your new year. Amen. Year. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. God, God bless you, Kay. God Bye. bless you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That concludes part two of my interview with Mr. Graham Kerr. It was such a delight speaking to him. I still can't believe that he agreed. He was so kind. As you could hear, I was pretty nervous through much of the interview, and he really was so supportive. I'm very glad that I had a chance to listen to it a few times as I edited the the podcast because it gave me a chance to really listen more and hear more deeply what he was saying. I think the idea of being silent, of listening to God, especially in our culture and during these difficult times is so critical. And I hope it's something that I incorporate more into my daily practice and all of you do as well. I also think he's just a great example of recreating yourself and continuing to do good. He's 87 now, but he's still active, still writing books, still helping people, uh, myself included. And we could certainly all learn from that example. So again, thank you, Graham, if you're listening. And to everyone, I hope you join me for my next interview, which will be with Ms. Tana Warren. She's a therapist who has spent most of her life working with the foster care population, with abused and neglected children, and working with people who've experienced trauma. We'll be talking to her about her faith journey and how these incredibly difficult situations that she's confronted through the lives of her clients, how that's affected her faith how it's challenged her faith and how she's grown through those experiences. So please join me. In the meantime, peace and blessing. May you all be well. Thank you for joining.